hundreds of people come in from the community and they're always inactive and they're struggling to change that behavior. And so the question really, is it easier to change someone's inactivity behavior by saying, go from doing nothing to 30 or 40 minutes a week versus go to nothing to 150 minutes a week or, or somewhere in between? performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is about teeth. No, not your teeth, but fish teeth. And you've probably started asking yourself, Dave, where are you going with this fish teeth? But some scientists looked at piranha's teeth. These are razor sharp teeth that in horror movies from the 70s will strip all the meat off your bones and things like that. They have a single row of teeth on the upper and lower jaw like humans do. And they lose teeth on one side of their mouth all at once and a fresh set comes in five days later. Then the same thing happens on the other side of the jaw. So there's always a set of sharp teeth but just on half the jaw, which is kind of weird. And that way there's never anything dull. And scientists really thought this is because carnivorous fish are used to eating scales, fins, and flesh. The problem is that piranhas share exactly that trait with a fish called the paku, which is a cousin of the piranha that eats plants. Obviously, for that reason, the paku are smaller, weaker, and have lower testosterone levels and a hard time reproducing. Okay, maybe not, but that's what happens when humans do that. Anyway, what they figured out is that eating hard seeds and tough stems also damage fish teeth, so cycling through using one side of the mouth versus the other is a good strategy. And these fish have a double row of teeth on the upper and lower jaw. So what this means for us is that whether or not you're carnivorous or vegan, your bodies may adapt in surprising ways. And maybe we can't just look at teeth to say what we're supposed to or not supposed to eat. So there's been this long debate, oh, human teeth are this or they're that. Uh, probably you might be able to eat some plants or some meat with your teeth, and that doesn't mean that that's the only thing you should be eating either one way or the other. Sorry if you're on the carnivore diet uh, for the rest of your life or that's your plan, or sorry if you're on a vegan diet for the rest of your life and that's your plan. Both of you will probably fail eventually and have a bite of bacon because, mm, bacon. And in terms of vegetables, we all know cucumbers are the gateway drug of plants. So you'll probably have one of those too. And that's how it's going to be. If not avocados, hey, avocados. All right, on to the show. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. 
ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. We're going to talk about something that I dearly love, which is avoiding exercise. Or actually, more accurately, we're going to talk about exercising the minimum effective dose and some other things you probably wouldn't know about how human physiology responds. And that's because I've got a really, really cool expert on who's a professor of exercise and sports science and high altitude exercise physiology at Western Colorado University. His name is Lance Dalek. And I've already checked with him. He is not related to the Doctor Who Daleks and does not want to exterminate. Now, exactly four people of the million people here this laughed at that joke and Lance laughed at it. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, you just you need to get up on your Doctor Who. Come on, man. Okay. Lance, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here, Dave. The reason that I had you on is that I did a recent podcast with the founders of Carol, the exercise bike that uses AI in order to give you really the minimum effective dose exercise in nine minutes a day. The response to the podcast was really positive, and I asked them for more research, and they said, well, why don't you talk to the guy who did research on our minimum effective dose uh, exercise uh, thing, uh, but it was research that was funded by the American Council on Exercise. So you're the professor who actually said, hey, let's see what's going on in people's bodies and brains from these different types of exercise. So I want to pick your brain on this, because if you can free the people listening to this show from having to go spend you know an hour a day in a spin class so they can do that if they want to, but they don't feel like they have to. I feel like that extra time could be spent meditating, playing with our kids, connecting with our community, or just eating uh, piranhas. You eat piranhas, don't you? Maybe once or twice. I, I don't know. I, I think you can eat them. I've never eaten a piranha, but I would just because of the irony. Now, what got you into specifically high altitude physiology, because there's tons of exercise uh, researchers out there, but the high altitude side, that's a rare breed. Why did you want to go high? One where I'm located. So Gunnison, Colorado is located at nearly 8,000 feet. And my past includes interest in endurance performance. And one of the traditional strategies for improving performance is to exercise at high altitude more recently, I'm interested in high altitude because it appears that hypoxia that's linked with high altitude not only helps with performance, but is also important for modifying various cardiovascular disease risk factors. So brief exposure to hypoxia might actually be really good for us. Absolutely. And I've been reading uh, some papers recently about something called HIF, HIF-1 and HIF-2 hypoxia inducible factor. Are you up on that? Absolutely. Can we talk about that? I've been, I didn't realize we were going to get to go there because we're going to talk more about exercise uh, physiology, but uh, I believe there's some massive stuff happening. I do an intermittent hypoxic training at Upgrade Labs. What is HIF and why should people care about it? So HIF-1-alpha is a protein that is normally uh, regularly produced in our body at sea level. Uh, however, in a normoxy or sea level environment, it degrades 
And so it doesn't really have any effect in our body. However, when exposed to hypoxia, whether it's the real thing uh, or whether it's simulated, HIF-1-alpha is preserved and it upregulates gene expression for really dozens and dozens of different molecules, uh, proteins, hormones in our body. Uh, some of the key ones that my students are usually interested in, uh, the general community members usually in interested in, uh, one is it stimulates EPO, so it produces more red blood cells as a result of HIF-1-alpha being preserved. Uh, it produces an increase in VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. So this promotes more vasculature formation. Uh, it improves GLUT4 transporter protein activity so we can move our glucose from our bloodstream into our cells more effectively. And that's just really the tip of the iceberg. Now, it's really interesting. People with chronic mold exposure, like I used to have, and one of the things I've done a documentary about at moldymovie.com, if you guys haven't seen it, it's free uh, and worth an hour of your time. But the things that happen are you get a decline in VEGF and a decline in EPO. These are things that I actually quantitatively had. And it's amazing. You know, Toxins in the environment can do that. They manipulate those hormones. But maybe holding your breath for a while, or more likely <laughs> getting a little bit more hypoxic via more extreme methods, can not only recover from those things, it can also give you performance improvements that are pretty darn amazing. Uh, um, what is what is your recommendation for people who aren't going to sleep in an oxygen deprivation tent and do stuff like that? So you're listening to the show, you're thinking, oh, that sounds cool. I want more VEGF. I want more EPO. Is there a poor man's version of this? Yeah, great question. And a couple of the areas we've actually been exploring with some of our research here. One is if we expose ourselves to heat, we increase something called heat shock protein. Yeah. And heat shock protein can actually maintain or preserve HIF-1 alpha. And so we've been looking at novel heat strategies such as sauna use, hot water immersion, sauna suits, and really getting the same benefit potentially that we would get if we exposed one to the real thing in terms of hypoxia. And so that's really appealing because as you mentioned, we may not have easy access to altitude or hypoxia, but we have much better access to a sauna, a hot tub. And so you know, we're, we're starting to answer the question, will it work? And it appears the answer to that is yes. The next question is, well, how do we manage the dose effectively? You know, so we tell people, well, what's the right exposure? You know, how long, how many days and so forth. Is there a, a timing that works? Do you want to get hot before you exercise, after you exercise, or just, heck, we don't need exercise, just sit in the sun and watch Netflix? We've, we've tried a couple different things. So we've done the exercise with a sauna suit, you know, so exercising with heat. And then we've also done exercise and then post-exercise uh, a hot tub. I'm guessing that of, probably works because that's the most traditional way. Yeah, both both pretty similarly effective. Okay. Uh, what we do at Upgrade Labs is we actually have intermittent hypoxic training with high-intensity intervals where you're breathing air that's been scrubbed of oxygen to induce hypoxia. It's pretty intense, but man, you feel amazing afterwards, like mm -hmm. stupidly amazing. I, I have one downstairs at my house that I don't use as often as I probably should. 
um, but it's uh, it's it's a, a very meaningful way to manipulate those things. And so there's there's one hack for everyone listening. So maybe after you exercise, uh, hop in the sauna uh, or a hot tub for a little while, and there might be some additional benefits that exercise alone wouldn't do for you. Okay. Absolutely. That's cool. I didn't actually know that. That's completely new. I didn't know about the heat shock protein, which is, we've talked about that on the show before, uh, but I didn't know there was a connection between that and a HIF-1 alpha. Uh, and I definitely am really intrigued. And for all of you listening who are interested in the biohacking side of things, if you learn how to manipulate VEGF and EPO levels, uh, this, these aren't EPOs famous, you know, Lance Armstrong and people like that, you know, increasing blood volume. Uh, but EPO is a hormone that goes up and down and can really affect how you feel and the same thing with, uh, with VEGF. Uh, so these are, these are hackable things that are at the cutting edge of biohacking and you might not know you're doing that when you exercise, but you are. Okay. Let's talk about research that you did on the Carol and for new listeners, the Carol is a bike. We have one at upgrade labs at the Beverly Hilton. I've got one downstairs. Uh, my wife uses it. My kids use it. Uh, I use it. And it's a nine minute a day thing. You ride real slowly while an AI system is telling you, ride even slower. No, you're pedaling too fast. And you're sort of like, why am I even on here? And all of a sudden it's like, ah, there's a tiger. And then you pedal like stupidly crazy for 10 seconds to think you're going to die. And then you stop and, and calm down as fast as you can. And it's, it's remarkable. You don't sweat. Nine minutes later, you're done, but you feel good. I wonder what's going on in there because you did the full clinical validation on this. So why 10 seconds? Why do you have to get your heart rate down the way you do? What what's going on in there? You know, so interesting question, and you know, I break it down from a exercise biochemistry standpoint. Right. So with a 20-second sprint, you're increasing your energy demand above rest substantially. That's a severe disruption to your your homeostasis and you know as a result of that you're putting in motion you know a variety of upregulation of metabolic pathways that allow you to provide energy that will regenerate ATP so that you can keep sprinting for for 20 seconds and the research is pretty clear that we've identified that minimum time that turns on these these pathways you know 20 seconds two bouts a day and that's that's sufficient um, 20 seconds but that's two 10 second bouts right the the um the carol protocol we used uh-huh. is two 20 second oh, I, sprints i could just be misremembering how long it is because i'm usually pedaling like there's a tiger chasing me because that's what the ai yep. is telling yep. me so it probably is two 20 seconds two 20 seconds okay but there, it meant it feels like a long time when you're full out as fast mm-hmm. as you can um what's what's the difference between that approach and just hopping on the bike or a treadmill for say 45 minutes so it's again I made the analogy of energy demand, mm-hmm. right? So for 45 minutes, you're creating an energy demand, but it's gradual, it's slow, it's easy, and it's it's not as much of a perturbation to your to your body's homeostasis as the, the Carroll protocol is or the, the sprint interval training is. So, so it's about going from baseline to as crazy as possible and back to baseline quickly. And the, the rate of change is more important than the total volume of exercise. Absolutely. 
And, and this matches what I've been writing about for years since the beginning of, of my blog uh, has been this high intensity stuff works better. And I used to be a long distance cyclist, you know, and I, there's great value in moving around and walking and all. But for me to lose the 100 pounds uh, that I've lost, it was food was most important and exercise, which used to get a great deal of attention from me. I've spent less time and energy on it because it wasn't, it wasn't giving me results. And the idea is that, okay, how little time can I spend and feel the way I want and look the way I want? Nine minutes seems attractive. But here's my other question. If it's two 20-second things, couldn't I do this in four minutes? <laughs> Why do I need nine minutes? Great question. You know, and probably, you know, the couple of different answers. One is you do want to not just jump right into it. And, you know, there is a warm-up built in. You know, so you're you're yeah. preparing your your cardiovascular system, you're preparing your muscles for that, that all-out sprint and you know, recovering a little bit in between your two 20-second bouts and, and then having a short a short warm down as well. Um, you know, but, but your question's a, a good one, you know, is, is there room to shave off even more time with the warm up and cool down? You know, how much value uh, do those have in terms of um, preventing injury, you know, preventing adverse events uh, and so forth. But, but probably the traditional reasons why we tell people to warm up and cool down are, are all uh, valid here. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, can we shorten the workout even further? Um, and, and there's probably some legitimacy to, to seeking an answer to that question. <laughs> my, uh, uh, my friends at Carol, uh, they might think I'm a bad person, but I will admit that after the second sprint, I, I stand for 10 more seconds and I go, I could cool down on my next phone call <laughs> instead of cooling down on the bike. <laughs> Cause it's such a gentle cool down anyway. And I figure mm -hmm. I'm probably getting most of the benefits likely or not likely. Mm-hmm. I would say you're probably getting most of the benefits. Okay. Uh, but it's most, I know that Lana and, and the kids, they just stay on the whole time. And I do sometimes, but I'm, I don't know. I have a lot of stuff I want to do. And if I can get an extra game of ping pong in as my cool down, I would do that too. Cause you know, Hey, we all got to live. So, okay. Uh, we're doing two 20 second sprints. What, uh, what did you test to determine that this was the equivalent of 45 minutes of exercise or maybe even better? Like what, what were the variables that mattered? So, you know, we, we head to the two groups in our, our study, the, the one group that did the, the Carroll protocol and the other that did the, the widespread 150 minutes a week. So five days, 30 minutes a day. And, and so that was the, the comparator group. And we looked at fitness. We looked at cardiometabolic risk factors. So the lipid profile, the blood pressure, blood glucose. Uh, and then anthropometrics, waist circumference, body composition. And, and those were our main uh, dependent variables that we were using to compare Carol versus the traditional 150 minute per week exercise group. Both groups are doing five days a week? No, the, the Carol group uh, started out at just two days per week. <laughs> and then we gradually progressed it to four days per week okay. uh, for the last couple of weeks of the intervention. Which is better, two days or four days? It was a progression, you know, okay. just like we progress any of the, uh, you know, so we didn't compare two days versus three days versus four days, but we, we looked at an eight-week intervention and we tried to gradually progress them uh, in both both groups, but we ultimately got them up for the last couple of weeks of the intervention to four days per week. 
Okay, and, and the final results were equivalent to 45 minutes or to a half hour a day, five days a week, but this was now nine minutes a day, five days a week. Nine minutes, four days a week was the, the oh, maximum four days, for the not Carol five. group. Okay. So percentage-wise, this is about 20%, a little bit less than that, of the time spent exercising with no shower required. Yeah, definitely more time efficient and no sweat building up as you would with a maybe a longer hit workout or, or certainly a longer moderate intensity workout. So I, I don't own a Peloton, uh, but you know, the, the idea of you know, having a highly interactive training thing and, and all that, it, it always seems cool. It's, it's, it's kind of a cool idea. Uh, and I certainly saw the Peloton ad, which I did not find offensive by the way. Uh, but I, I, I'm just wondering like, like if you, if you look at that, is there some other benefit, sweating or something that comes from doing a longer, uh, you know, a longer kind of grind it out on a, on a spin bike sort of thing? Like, is there a reason to do that if you can get what you needed cardiovascular wise and you're seeing better results in nine minutes than a half hour? Yeah. So good questions. You know, it's, it's a really, I think that's a great philosophical question. And well, you've written 130 peer reviewed papers. Like, like you're the guy I'm going to ask and I have no idea what you're going to say, but like, right. You know, so the, the thing we really run into, we have a, we have a community exercise program here, you know, and we're seeing you know, hundreds of people come in from the community and they're always inactive and they're struggling to change that behavior. And so the question really is it easier to change someone's inactivity behavior by saying, go from doing nothing to 30 or 40 minutes a week versus go to nothing to 150 minutes a week or, or somewhere in between. And so, you know, there's, there's two different things at play here. There's, are you going to get better physiological responses? Maybe if you're doing longer intervals or longer continuous training, in some instance, yes, but in some instance, no, you're, you're getting the same benefits with, with lower or reduced uh, interval training, such as Carol. But, but the more important consideration is, are you going to continue to do it? And I think we're going to have a much more easier time. And you just said it yourself. You don't even want to warm down. <laughs> you you want to get off and do something else. And so I think that's most people's mindset is, you know, I'm going to do the minimum. And if the minimum can be effective, uh, I think that's very appealing for, for researchers and, you know, anyone interested in, you know, uh, physical activity promotion. So, so it comes down to people probably aren't going to do a half hour a day, five days a week. Uh, and, and the data shows maybe 8% of people exercise at those rates. And everyone else is just saying, you know, I wanted to go home. I had a commute and I wanted to see my family instead of going and, and doing that. But most of us can cram nine minutes of two or three days a week in. And, and that's, that's a pretty minimal ask. Okay. I think another consideration, Dave, is that you may get people to fit in 150 minutes a week during certain times of the year. Swimsuit season, is that what you're saying? Mm, summer. <laughs> Okay, but right. but maybe when you're not as busy. Yeah. Uh, but if we get into the holiday season where people frequently get very pinched for time, is it appealing to have something such as Carol to fall back on 
And, and so I think that's another strategy. Okay. Not just saying it has to be one or the other, but can it be a combination of both for some people? And I, I think it oftentimes is, and it's different too. Oh, I'm going to go on a, a long bike ride, you know, with family or with friends for social reasons. I'm going to go on a hike. You're in shape, so you can do that, but you don't have to do that to be in shape. Is is what is what's going on here? Okay. Uh, something else that the Carol does that actually attracted me to try it originally before I had them on the show uh, was I wanted to look at the artificial intelligence because the, you know, they call it you know the Carol Fit AI. And what they're doing is they call it the rehit protocol, but they adapt the resistance level based on your weight, how much output you put out before, how tired you are based on some data or another. Uh, did you test that uh, that algorithmic approach to increasing resistance and all in, in the studies that you did? We didn't. No, we didn't specifically study that in terms of what's what's going into the algorithm. Okay. Um, you know, I have the same understanding as what you just described, but what's, what's appealing to that is it's, it's personalized, right? Okay. So that, so that your 20 second workload, uh, is going to be personalized to you. So it's the Very right much. workload based on your heart rate and weight and all that. Okay. And, and that's the artificial intelligence side of it. But in the study that you did, it wasn't, they were just doing like a fixed, a, a fixed amount of resistance for 20 seconds. They're doing a custom amount of resistance to push them to the end. Cause I can tell you at the end of the 20 seconds, I'm like, you know, that tiger is going to get to eat me now. Cause I got nothing left because you know, the voice in, on the headphones that come with it is pretty convincing that there's a tiger chasing you and there's like jungle drums and, and it, it works. I'll, I'll put it that way. And it's actually kind of fun too. It okay. does. All right. Uh, and, but so that was what you tested it. And, uh, and I want to be really clear for people who are saying, you know, I can do, uh, interval training at home. Sure, you can hop on any bike and like crank the thing down to spin it, and and you you can't really crank it for twenty seconds without a slow ramp up. And this is from you're gently walking through the forest. Ah, tiger, run! It's gonna kill you. And you know, and, and you're kind of standing on the pedals. Uh, and it's funny to watch people doing it. That I, I should like make a video of my kids doing it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're red in the face and, and panting. Uh, and it's it is different. And if it wasn't set high enough, or if it was set too high, you you couldn't do 20 seconds. So I, I've never had it ruin me where I just gave up. And I've never had it get to the point where I'm like, oh, I could have run another you know, 10 feet away from the tiger. Um, so uh, whatever they're doing there seems to be effective. And that was what you tested. All right. Um. Talk to me about what you think is going on with glycogen depletion, what's happening in your mitochondria. Like, why does this type of exercise work? Absolutely. When we're doing sprinting to get away from tigers, our most rapid means of energy provision is going to be glycolytic flux, right? So we're using muscle glycogen. And, and for people who don't know the glycogen stuff, this is just where your body stores carbs in the body for rapid use. It's, it's been demonstrated with, you know, ultrasound that, you know, a couple of 20 second bouts depletes quite rapidly your, your muscle glycogen stores. And this is important for a couple of reasons for training adaptations. Uh, it essentially signals your body after exercise that I need to replenish these stored glycogen or stored carbohydrate. That's why this type of training is great for people that might have trouble uh, with glucose control. So maybe pre-diabetics, because uh, it's it's going to really help upregulate the ability to, to bring muscle or uh, bring glucose in from the blood to the muscle to restore that carbohydrate. Uh, so that's one really important 
uh, adaptation. And then the relationship between muscle glycogen and mitochondria, which you alluded to, uh, the depletion in muscle glycogen is your body's way of sort of saying, in the future, if I experience these episodes, uh, I'm not going to be able to maintain it for a long period of time. And I'm going to still need to be able to, to move. And I need to upregulate the ability of my body to make energy in the presence of oxygen. And so that happens in the mitochondria. And so there's, there's an upregulation of various kinases that kind of activate something called mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, and, and that gives us a better ability to, to make ATP in the presence of oxygen. And, and we get higher fitness levels as a result of that. I actually have a, a fetish for mitochondrial biogenesis. It, it's becoming a more common thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that's common in your field as well. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it was this is something I wrote about very specifically in Headstrong, my book on the brain and mitochondria, where, hey, if you can do anything possible, and there's a bunch of different pathways to cause yourself to grow new mitochondria, it's like getting a bigger battery pack in your Tesla or your iPhone. It, it really matters. And they're not just batteries, but... Uh, and you're saying that the 22nd Carroll protocol uh, is one that drives biogenesis. Yeah. So one of the one of the signaling mechanisms uh, that I alluded to, it's AMPK, and mm -hmm. it's been really clearly shown that that's upregulated maximally with two 22nd sprints. Therefore, adding a third sprint, a fourth sprint. A longer sprint isn't going to upregulate that important signaling molecule that stimulates more mitochondria to a greater extent. And so that's that's the beauty of the, the Carroll protocol is it's very sound uh, research based from a mechanistic standpoint. You know, so the, the question people might ask is, do I need to do more? You'll get other benefits. But in terms of if we're focusing on this mitochondria uh, signaling molecule and, and making more of these, which we're excited about, then you've kind of hit the sweet or optimal spot with, with this type of uh, training paradigm. Now, there's a study that came out. Uh, this was actually after I wrote the Bulletproof Diet, so it's not in there. But it shows that this magic compound called trimethylxanthine, i.e. caffeine, uh, is uh, also raises AMPK levels, right? And, and so I do tend to do a bulletproof coffee before I do my Carol. Um, and even if it's just a shot of espresso pulled with the clean beans, advisable to do caffeine before hopping into uh, a Carol session or any high intensity interval training session. Absolutely, at the at the level that you just described. <laughs> okay. But you don't need a pre-workout stack that has 400 milligrams of caffeine and ephedrine and, and is you know going to pop a vein or anything like that, right? So we're talking you know 100 milligrams sort of sort of doses. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Um, that uh, that's fascinating, and, and so this idea for me tripling down on on mTOR. Also, we know exercise suppresses mTOR, caffeine or coffee actually suppresses mTOR, and fasting suppresses mTOR. Uh, and so what I recommend to get the most benefit from exercise, uh, in actually all of the books is exercise fasted after having had coffee. And if, from my understanding of things, which is pretty deep, if you have some fat in the coffee, i.e. bulletproof, uh, it's not going to affect your, 
your glucose at all. <laughs> and you might get some energy from ketones, so it's going to be okay. Uh, and uh, But then uh, you're, you're doing that in a fasted state, so you've basically suppressed mTOR as much as you can. So when you eat after you exercise, your mTOR will come rebounding. You'll get a spike in mTOR. You'll basically recover and build more muscle more quickly. Uh, and then you can keep it low later by not eating too much protein. Valid or not valid? That's consistent with all the readings that I've I've done and okay. kind of what we what we talk about with our graduate students. Absolutely. Now, when we talked before about AMPK and mitochondrial biogenesis, but what about uh, mTOR and muscle building using the Carol idea? I mean, that there isn't that much muscle that I would think you'd build in these two sprints. I tell you, I push really hard, but is this? more cardiovascular, you know, heart muscle and conditioning? Is this more mitochondrial conditioning or is there some benefit to muscle just because of, you know, testosterone and blood flow and whatever else? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and that's not something we've looked at. So I, uh, it's theoretical all, at this point. It'd all yeah. be pretty, pretty speculative. Although with, uh, you know, there's some, probably some merit to thinking a spike in, uh, insulin growth factor, you're, you're actually, you know, with this high intensity protocol, eliciting some similarities to hypoxia, you know, uh, an ischemia because of the high intensity nature. And that's been shown to, um, in certain groups, you know, as you start getting into older populations, it's maybe not as pronounced, but some uh, spikes in growth, growth hormones. So there, there's probably some speculation that there could be some muscle building properties uh, depending on some other factors. Uh, again, that's not something though, that in the couple studies we've done that we've, we've looked at. It's not a claim you're making. I, I just, I, I know that you're teaching people this stuff and that you've spent you know a, a decade or more, uh, studying all these things. So that means that you can look at something and say that probably would work, or that's a bad idea. And that you're mm -hmm. way more believable than anyone else I've interviewed on this kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're saying there's probably some good muscleness there around mTOR, but we don't really know because no one ever quantified it. Right. Ah, okay, good, good deal. I've seen different studies looking at different types of high-intensity interval training. My earlier books, it looks sprint for a minute because that's what most of the protocols said. You know, run as fast as you can like you're going to die and you lay on your back and pant, get up and do it again two, three times, you're probably good to go. But now we're seeing some franchise outlets and you know they're they're doing all sorts of stuff that's labeled as hit. So what's the difference between lab-based high intensity interval training and what's kind of been the adulterated commercialized versions out there? Uh, what are you seeing and and do you have concerns or uh, are you supportive of that? like what's what's going on there? I, th I think my primary concern with commercialized hit is it still tends to be not what hit is intended to be, which is time efficient. <laughs> they're still making a 45 minute hit class when it should be a 10 minute hit class. Right. And, and so sure you can get a, a small segment of the population to do that and, and do it for a short period of their life and, and they'll have some remarkable benefits. But back to what we talked about earlier, is that really sustainable, you know, from a, from a lifestyle behavior and absolutely not. That's my, that's one of my real concerns. And I think the other concern is these commercialized group classes tend to not be very personalized to the fitness level uh, and health profile of the individual. And I think that can be quite risky and, and people can, you know, we haven't had any adverse events with 
this short, you know, Carol protocol, two 20 second sprints. And we've actually tested some people that are into their sixties and seventies on the bike and, and we're not seeing any problems. You know, and, and you hear from people that are going to some of these uh, gyms, um, doing, doing the longer interval workouts, um, you know, having, you know, post-exercise, low blood pressure, injuring themselves. And, and so, you know, those are some of my concerns, uh, you know, with, with what I'm seeing. Got it. The, the way to solve that would be, okay, work with a personal trainer is going to customize the level for you. That just gets to be very expensive. You have to schedule ahead of time versus have an AI system that does it in your living room. Uh, and I will admit that the, the Carol is the first exercise bike I've owned that hasn't turned into a coat hanger. Uh, so there, there's that. <laughs> uh, so at, as a, an expert in the field, uh, what does your exercise, uh, your personal exercise regimen look like? Good question. Putting me on the spot. I was just thinking you didn't look that ripped. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that. I it is the, it is the time of the year that we were talking about earlier, <laughs> right? Final examinations and totally. You have a lot. Lots, lots of deadlines. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I really try to to do a mixture, and you know, a couple of the comments that you've said earlier in the earlier in the podcast is exactly what I do in the summers. I do a lot of hiking. We're in the middle of the mountains. You know, I have three boys, so we'll do a lot of you know longer, gentle hikes, you know, up to higher altitude. But as I am in the middle of my semesters and you know, deadlines with grants and projects, I will go to you know integrating the Carol bike a couple days a week, and also trying to do some some gentle just walks the, the other days, you know, so I really try to titrate it. And, and so I, I use, you know, I use the Carol to sort of allow me to stay healthy and fit when I'm busy. Um, when I, to, to avoid periods of, you know, I, to avoid detraining. Got it. Um, and, and so, so that's, that's typically what I try to do. And it's, you know, as you get older and probably same for you, responsibilities with kids and work responsibilities that y- your, your time is, is compromised. And so, you know, I, I try to, to use the research that we have available, the instrumentation that we have available to, to combat that. Well, that, that's some of the most honest talk about exercise possible. So, you know, like, look, I, I'm an authority in the world on this stuff. I also am a dad. So uh, putting this exercise ahead of all of your other commitments at times in life, it doesn't make sense for anyone uh, unless you're a prof, you know fitness model or you know an, an actor or someone where the way you look like that is really important, and frankly, half of those people, if you pull their blood work, uh, they're doing it wrong. <laughs> like they're not going to like how they they look or feel ten years from now. But you know you can you can have some really nice ripped abs there, but it's it's short term. Uh, so I I like that. What about weight bearing stuff? I mean, do you do push ups? Do you do yoga? Do you go lift heavy things every now and then too? Or are you pretty much this is it? That's what you need right now. It's weight bearing is a combination of, and you'll laugh at this. <laughs> so, so, uh, a, a true, a true mountain person. We, uh, you, we get about eight to 10 cords of firewood yeah. a year, you know, have a great, you know, great wood burning stove in our, in our house, in our log home. And so, 
you know, so probably from June through June through uh, December, that's what I'm doing, you know, for my, for my resistance training is. And that's some serious work. If, are you using a, uh, an ax and are you splitting by hand? Yeah, we split by hand. Okay. Just, it's a good, you know, it's a good workout. It's a, yeah, it is 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, splitting wood and stacking cords and do it all do summer, it. do it throughout okay. the fall. And, and then it's, I periodize my training unintentionally and, and don't do much resistance training. Uh, but but skied in the winter. Okay, so you mostly but, but move and, and you do cool. some some cardio. Okay, yeah, I, that's, that's I like that. And this is after writing 130 papers on this uh, or contributing to them and studying it and teaching it. This is where you ended up. Uh, that's actually really cool. Uh, talk about inflammatory markers that you've seen in in the studies you've done or in other research you've done. Um, exercise can be highly inflammatory. In fact, that's why it works to a certain extent. What happens to inflammation when you're using these short, brief Carroll style uh, intervals? It's great question. It's not a not a measure that we had in either of our projects, so can't speak directly to okay. uh, the, the findings with with our projects. Uh, however, from the literature and the, you know the literature on other you know sprint interval training, you know that's probably one of the valuable things about keeping it brief and, and keeping the the bouts to a, to a minimum is that you're producing a good amount of inflammation that then is going to kind of stimulate some of those adaptations we want to see, but, but not going overboard uh, and not creating a chronic inflammatory state, which then starts to become problematic for disease reasons, as well as overtraining. Of the people who exercise four or five times a week, what percentage of them do you think are likely to be overtraining? We've done some cortisol measures on our athletes here, and probably 85 to 90% of them from that cortisol measure are in an overreaching or overtrained state. 80 to 90% of them? I'm so happy you said that. I have experienced the same thing. I used to do more coaching for high-performance cognitive and executive stuff than I, I have time to do now. But I, I see these CEOs, and they're saying, oh, yeah, I'm training to go do the Kona Ironman, and you know, here's my regimen. And I'm like, hold on, you just got back from Japan. Like, yeah, I landed in Japan, and I went for a two-hour run. And I'm like, when do you recover here? But then you say, how's your sleep? How's your testosterone? Yeah, my libido shot. My sleep is no good. But I mean, look at me. I'm, you know, 9% body fat. And, you know, my company is going to go public. And it, it, you find out, though, when you get to know them a little bit, like they're, they're dragging ass, uh, which is a technical term. Uh, and and I, I know I got to that state when I said I'm going to lose my 100 pounds. I worked out an hour and a half a day, six days a week, halfway to half cardio. You know, come hell or high water, I don't care if I'm sick, I'm going. I didn't lose the weight because I had a cortisol problem that I developed from doing that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you're, you're seeing the same thing. It's, it's an endemic problem, and it's not a call to exercise less, or maybe it is. You still have to move, right? And just to do the kind of exercise that works, and you're saying that that the at least not you're not saying in general but the the studies that you did and these weren't studies carol paid for these are their american council on exercise to find efficient thing you just use carol as the tech just right. to be really clear like this wasn't a, a paid research thing um, well it was paid but it wasn't paid by the the people who created the tech so uh, you're saying that that wasn't generating overtraining even when you got them up to four times a week 
No, really well tolerated. And, you know, again, you know, RPE levels of what you would see, you know, once, once they got used to the, the protocol, RPE levels, what you would see when someone does sort of moderate to maybe a little bit vigorous intensity exercise, sort of, you know, somewhat hard, you know, so quite, quite interesting, you know, even though they're all out, uh, when they finish the workout, they're kind of reporting, eh, that wasn't, that wasn't all out in terms of I'm exhausted. So no one, no one's ever going to bonk on this. And, and then just the training responsiveness across you know, a variety of variables that you don't see when you are overtrained. Because okay. inflammatory markers, if it's chronic inflammation, interferes with training responsiveness. And so, you know, we again, we didn't measure in this study cortisol, but, you know, usually when you see cortisol elevated or, you know, some of the interleukin um, inflammatory markers elevated, it, it tends to really blunt training responsiveness, you know, because okay. things like you mentioned with your CEO sleep and, and other things, you know, get interfered with and it just, it's a vicious cycle that you don't respond favorably. Okay. So you're, you didn't measure it, but because they responded to the training, you can infer they probably didn't have a cortisol problem. Absolutely. Okay. I got it. That, that seems pretty cool. Um, what about uh, calories burned? I, I keep talking to people from the 1970s say, but you know, what about Newton's law and you know, conservation of energy? It's calories in, calories out and all that. Uh, did, did you look at calories burned or fat loss and things like that? And, and did it matter? What, what did you find? Yeah, good question. And something is probably the next step. So we got some preliminary data on uh, calories, certainly during the actual session, but then afterwards or the epoch phenomenon. And what's the epoch phenomenon? So the epoch stands for excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. And we know when we exercise, we exercise severely, we disrupt a variety of our homeostatic uh, parameters. So our resting heart rate, our resting ventilation, our hormone levels, our sympathetic nervous system, and those don't just go back to resting valuables, resting values immediately post-exercise, uh, it, it persists. And all of these things, so increased ventilation, uh, increased heart rate, uh, to replenish glycogen stores, uh, to rebuild muscle, takes oxygen. And so we're consuming oxygen at a higher level than we were prior to exercise, or we have an increased epoch, we're burning more calories, right? So epoch is also referred to sort of more in a lay term afterburn. Got it. So, so, so the idea is you had to repair and recover. So it took more oxygen and thus it took more calories because if you're burning oxygen, you're also burning food calories or fat calories. Like they came from somewhere. Absolutely. All right. And, and that's where, you know, that's where we're, we're not just getting the benefit from the the two twenty second sprints, and it, it's all exclusively during that time frame. It's resulting in a physiological milieu in our body that burns more calories for you know some of the literature is saying 
12 hours later, 24 hours later. And you know, as you just alluded to, that's going to benefit weight management. That's going to benefit your, your lipid profile because those excess calories you're burning are going to most likely be fats. It's you're, you're replenishing your glycogen stores. So you're using more glucose. So that's if you're, if you're a little high on your blood glucose level, it's going to benefit that. Um, so, so the EPOC phenomenon is something that's really important consideration for, for what's at play with the, you know, the Carroll protocol and something that, you know, we, we just looked at a very short time frame after exercise and EPOC was probably two to three times higher right after exercise than it was compared to moderate intensity training. Wow. So if you did nine minutes on Carol, you could eat a donut and it would hurt you less than if you did 45 minutes of a normal bike and ate a donut. Tell me it's true. <laughs> That's kind of what I heard there. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I'm not saying a donut is good for, I don't eat donuts, right. but I, I'm just right. like, because you you actually are having higher post exercise oxygen from two twenty second sprints Abs- than f- <laughs> that's absolutely. cheating. I love it. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> I I could see how uncomfortable you are with that donut conversation. There, there. These are uh, weighted donuts uh, made of uh, paleo flour. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> All right. Um, something else. A, a friend of mine who is a long term. Uh, spin instructor uh, for for years and you know multiple classes a day uh, kind of thing. Um, she had uh, both hips replaced uh, before she was forty, I think forty five, early forties. Uh, and I I've wondered, you know, is is you know many 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 hours a day. And and I'm not saying spin training is for the average person. This is an instructor um, who pushed herself really hard. Is that uh, it is well, let me put it another way. Uh, what concern do you have for wear and tear for the the population who's doing thirty to thirty minutes to an hour a day, many days a week over the course of decades? So certainly, the the high intensity nature of doing exercise, you know, doing high intensity exercise for decades uh, will eventually catch up with you. And, it, and so I think does. that, and, and so I think you, you have to have more modest or, or manageable ways of, of approaching, your, you know, your overall training paradigm. And, and, you know, so one way is people who are sort of lifetime devotees to high intensity exercise, they're going to really struggle um, with overuse injuries eventually as they get older. And, and so, you know, trying to, to find an alternative um, to not compromise the, the health benefits, but allow for, for less stress on, on hips, knees, and so forth. So, so this might be more sustainable. And I, I just wrote Superhuman, my book on living to at least 180. And, you know, I'd rather not have new, uh, new knees and new hips inserted when I'm 90. So if I can do things now that are giving me the metabolic ability to live that long, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and are not uh, causing me to become more cyborg than I already am. It seems like a good strategy, which is one of the reasons I'm interested in not overtraining or not overstressing parts of the body, but not understressing them either. Because if you do that, they turn to mush. Absolutely. Right? And you don't want that either. Uh, osteoporosis is no person's friend. 
what about cardiac safety with these? I mean, I, I know when we, we deal with uh, some of like the really intense CrossFit, you take someone who's deconditioned, you throw them in and, you know, hey, do the wad. You know, they, they get, they're sore for two weeks and they can even get uh, that rhabdomyosis uh, where you know you clog your kidneys with broken down muscle tissue, uh, which is not a good thing. And that's not to pick on CrossFit in that any sort of heavy, intense lifting from someone who has no conditioning, there's some small risk of that. But in other words, you can go too far. I just wonder uh, for for this kind of thing in terms of over uh, over exerting from a cardiac perspective or any other. Did you did you hear any of that, or did you see any of that? You know, overall, the literature is fairly clear that. Hit done properly, and so the the traditional hit that began to emerge maybe ten or fifteen years ago, the, the a four four by four model, mm-hmm. right? even that uh, higher volume hit, there wasn't a more pronounced risk of cardiovascular events compared okay. to moderate intensity exercise, and so we're now looking at not the traditional higher volume hit, but a lower volume and a personalized volume of hit. So that's going in a more conservative direction from a risk of cardiac events standpoint. So lower lower volume and, and the intensity that's customized. And I know in the Carol example specifically, they're, t- they're looking at your heart rate because you're holding onto the bike. So they're monitoring it. But if you were to try to do uh, high intensity interval training without cardiac monitoring, it might be a higher risk. Um, but it's probably not that big of a risk unless you, you take someone who's, you know, 50 pounds overweight and has an exercise and say, you know, go run, go run a sprint for a minute. Um, you know, uh, drill, drill instructor style. There probably is some cardiac risk from something like that. Yeah, probably, you know, not taking someone who hasn't exercised for 30 years and has known cardiac disease. And as a starting point, maybe, you know, doing, doing Carol. Okay. <laughs> something like that. Okay. Cause uh, it's uh, gentle uh, enough. A build, okay. a build up to that. But, you know, again, we, we had some older individuals and individuals with, with risk factors. And, you know, the, the key is, you know, again, and, we, and it's come up a couple of times is that the customized resistance is so critical. So a lot of people think of interval training, interval training on a bike. We're not talking about someone who's pumping a thousand watts or 800 watts. We're talking about for let's say a 67 year old grandma, it could be 190, 220 watts. So it's customized so that it's, it's also adjusting it based on their, their fatigue as well. And I think that's, that's so important to emphasize the personalized nature of it versus what I think in a lot of people's heads is what's going to happen during interval training. They're doing a a, a workload that a, a high level athlete would be doing. And that's just not the case. Okay. They don't have to do that. And and let me tell you one other interesting thing we found Dave with, res- with regards to risk. So sure. we measured blood pressure, right? So we measured blood pressure, maximal blood pressure, and the maximal blood pressure during the sprints never exceeded a blood pressure value that is considered to be a contraindication to stress testing in a hospital or lab setting. Okay. So so people, even in that the end of the 20-second sprints, they're not doing anything that's risky from a blood pressure perspective. Okay. So it's phenomenally safe, and you had you know, people at different ages and all that stuff. 
it was more effective than spending more time doing more unpleasant styles of exercise. Um, this kind of makes me happy, <laughs> all, all that <laughs> stuff. Um, what do you think about the people say, I've decided I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to run a marathon, and then they start training for that. Good strategy, bad strategy? I generally discourage people from having that goal as that's, that's what they're going to, that's, that's the first thing they're going to reach for. Let's, let's start with a 5k or a 10k. And <laughs> there, there you go. I, I always, I always laugh. And I, by the way, I fully support people say, I want to run a marathon to prove that I can do it. Uh, and I want to do it once or, or you know, once every 10 years or something, just, you know, more power to you. Like that is an accomplishment. I, I, I do have concerns that the first person who ran a marathon died from doing it, which is why we celebrate them. And I, I have not seen evidence that for the vast majority of people that appears to be the healthiest exercise option uh, for them to live a long time and feel good all the time. Uh, and so like, like, you could say, oh, then you're anti-cardio. It's like, no, there's a cardiovascular stuff is important. There has to be a middle answer where too much is bad and too little is bad. And I'm just seeking that middle. And it seems like you've done some pretty good science here on finding what, what's going to work when you're saying three intervals is less effective than two. Uh, okay. I, I'm pretty excited about that. And, uh, um, Carol, uh, when, uh, when they asked you to come on or asked me to have you come on, uh, I said, all right, I want someone who really knows what's going on, uh, who's you know, not commercially motivated here, but someone who's, you know, science motivated, uh, you've definitely convinced me more, well, I don't say more than that. They were already convinced cause I tried the thing and then they came on the show and talked about it. Uh, but you've really answered some questions that I didn't know the answers to about this idea. Is there anything else that you think is is a major misconception about exercise that we haven't covered today? Just if, if you could sit down to, to hundreds of thousands of people, what you're doing right now, and say, look, this is what you have wrong about exercise, what would you say? I think what we've had wrong, and I think I maybe briefly touched on it, but but it's it's good to maybe emphasize even further. I think what we've had wrong for a long time, and certainly scientists have, have had it wrong, and I think individuals, you know, in the health and fitness industry and even medical community is this sort of notion that more is better. And we can't even get, you said it, 8% of the population to do 150 minutes per week. You know, so why are we spending so much time researching in that domain, making public health recommendations in that domain, if so few people are achieving that? And so I think the the focus on going to the interval training and also to the you know lower volume in interval training is is very important. Uh, it's there's as you you know as we've discussed there's great evidence to support it just from basic research to to the mechanisms that support it. And I also think maybe just to to add one other thought is the personalized nature of any exercise is so critical. And for too long, a one size fits all approach has been applied. And, and I think that's not helped with the 8% statistic. I, I very much like that. Just like with food, we're not all the same. The diet that works for one person might not work for another, but there's some basic rules around don't eat too much, don't eat too often that do work for everyone. Uh, but the composition is going to have to be based on your genetics and who you are and where you're doing and what else is going on in your life. And it makes sense exercise would be the same way. 
so telling everyone you get the same size meal as the other person, even though one person just exercised and has been fasting for a day and weighs 250 pounds made out of muscle, they might want three three meals, and that's okay, right? <laughs> so <laughs> exercise is, <laughs> goes along the same way, and I do believe people tend to forget that, uh, and I, I appreciate you calling that out, or the customization matters. And I, because I'm lazy, I like the idea of an artificial intelligence customizing things for me, because I don't have to do the work, because I'm lazy. And if I could exercise less and I could think less, I'm happy to do that because it frees up capacity for other thinking or other things, uh, which is cool. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I want to ask you something that is maybe less exercise related, but I I just wrote my big book on anti-aging and I've got some big goals there. How long do you think you can live given all the things you know about exercise and some about nutrition too that's part of that whole thing? Like what's your maximum lifespan that you think is achievable that you might even hit? Ooh, interesting question. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the the concept of a paleolithic lifestyle, re- removing removing some factors and and I think uh, with, with modern medicine and with adherence to sort of some some of these things we know, one forty. Oh, look at you! All right, I love it. One forty because we have modern medicine, right? And yeah. we keep looking backwards. People who make it to 100 now, we didn't have antibiotics when they were born. Like, it's a completely different world now. Right. Okay. Wow. All right. 140. That's a, that's a great number from a guy who's really dug in on how some physiology works, which is, which is awesome. Uh, well, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I know that your research, uh, people can certainly uh, Google Lance Dalek, D-A-L-L-E-K, and uh, find all the papers that you're in. And the Carol uh, technology that you ran those two studies on is at carolfitai.com. And that is a, a bike that I have downstairs uh, and, that I, and that I actually use based on the last interview with Carol. Uh, so that's uh, the, the big URL to go to. Uh, anywhere else in particular people should go to find out about your research in particular? They can go to western.edu and type in the high altitude exercise physiology program. We've got lots of good information about the projects that we have ongoing here on our website. Uh, beautiful, in fact, for some of the hypoxia related stuff we talked about as well, I think you, you probably have some good info there. Okay, so that's western.edu? Correct. Okay, awesome. Lance, this has been fascinating and we went to all sorts of places I didn't think we'd go. We got to talk about VEGF and EPO and I did not also know that you know, doing three intervals was worse than two on this, and all of this is just making me happy. Thanks for having me, Dave. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Uh, go out there and exercise less already. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> go out there and move around anyway, uh, and do some intervals, uh, maybe some really fast ones, uh, and not for too long. Uh, do consider the Carol bike if that fits in, in your kind of lifestyle, because I think it's actually a really cool innovation. Uh, so I'm, I'm recommending it. And uh, if you haven't read any of the books about mitochondria, you want to go know more about what we talked about, Amp K and all that, check out Headstrong. It's a really good book. Or check out Superhuman, which puts it all together and how you can live a lot longer. Uh, my most recent book and what all the people are saying is is the best book. And whatever you do, if you read a book, leave a review. I'm thanking you in advance. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.